You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. I am here with my friends today, Dr. Carrie Vedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas and Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center for another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And we are so excited today. We have Dr. Tex Vermillier, who is the Vice President of Scientific Advancement through Ovation Fertility with us today. Hey, Tex. Hello, hello. Hey. Happy to be here. How's everybody doing? Great. Good. Well, it's hot. It's hot in Texas. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It is so ridiculously hot in Texas. It is 105 degrees. That's That's probably humid and sticky and icky there too. Oh, you Las Vegas people. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But it's a dry heat. <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's 110 degrees here, but I guarantee you it feels better than your 105 and the stickiness and the instant bath as soon as you walk out the door. Yeah. Oh, no. And your mosquitoes uh, as big as birds. Yeah. What, what are mosquitoes like in, in um, Nashville, Abby? Um, they're pretty bad. Uh, we, I think if I walk into a room of 100 people and there's a mosquito there, it would bite me. So they're pretty bad. And we even have like West Nile virus from our mosquitoes and, and all other kinds of germs that we can get from mosquitoes. So we have lots of mosquitoes, but they're probably not as big as the ones in Texas, I'm betting. Oh my goodness. I, I can tell you that the Minnesota mosquitoes, when I was in training, those were the worst. Those were the worst. However, the funny thing is... The flies in Minnesota were very weird compared to Texas flies. In Texas, we have these little bitty flies and they're like super fast. So growing up watching the Karate Kid and you saw Mr. Miyagi with his chopsticks catching Mm -hmm. the fly, like as a kid, I could not, and like I was just always in awe about this. And then I moved to Minnesota where they had these huge flies and like you could actually catch them if you tried. Did you ever successfully pull off the chopstick maneuver with a fly? I, I did not pull off the chopstick maneuver with the fly, but I could now understand how the chopstick maneuver could happen. <laughs> so I, can, I can bet with Texas hand-eye coordination that we were talking about earlier, I bet he could pull off the chopstick maneuver to catch a fly. Have you ever tried that? I haven't tried it. Um, I use, um, it's called a, a bug assault. And it's a, um, it's a gun that shoots a little salt. And seen that. I've of, seen that. Gets the flies, yeah. So much we, easier to use than, than, than uh, chopsticks. We have an electronic, um, like, uh, tennis racket. Tennis racket, tennis racket. yep. <laughs> it's called the executioner. It works really well. <laughs> we just went around with a bottle of Windex and just spray the spl- spray the flies with Windex and they go down with that. Did you watch my Big Fat Greek Wedding one too many times? Uh, possibly. That's the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it does make me grateful that Tex at least has his little assault gun and doesn't go around with his welding torch trying to get him with the welding torch because I feel like that would result in a house fire or somebody uh, <laughs> putting their eye out. That's correct. That, that's kept in the garage at all times. <laughs> so, so Tex, I understand that you have a, a former um, hobby as a pole vaulter. Can you tell us a little bit about this? 
I think he had a scholarship for that, Susan. It wasn't a hobby. He's like really good at it, it sounds like. Well, I don't know if it's a hobby. Um, yeah, I, I've known to um, yeah run run with a fiberglass pole um, and pole vault. <laughs> uh, did, it in, <laughs> did it in high school for uh, quite a few years, actually in junior high, and, and kind of worked my way up. And yeah, I was able to uh, do some at the Cornell during my days. So he's not just a hobbyist, he's really good. So when was the last time you actually pole vaulted? Oh boy, um, it's been a very long time. I don't think I could uh, get vertical like that, um, like, I, like I was able to back in the days. I think maybe using a broomstick over a stream probably in the last 20 years. But other than that, uh, no, no real height. <laughs> What's like the highest height you vaulted? I don't really have any realm of kind of knowing what normal is. What's normal yeah. is what you, you do? So I believe my highest was about 14 foot. Um, but, you know, now wow. Olympians are, you know, 21, maybe 22 feet. Um, and the technology of the actual uh, pole has obviously evolved and you know, from back, back, back in the days, it was bamboo, and then it was uh, aluminum, and then they moved to fiberglass, and now I believe they use carbon fiber. So um, it's all about getting the right bend, um, and yeah, just the, the technique, sudden burst of you know speed, and got to get the pole in the box and go over the crossbar. So wow. yeah, it was good. That's cool. That's cool. Well, to, oh, we have our question of the day, which I almost forgot about. You're surprised, Susan. Oh, I know. I'm always the person who remembers. And when I'm hosting, is the one time I forget. So um, our question of the day is, even though I have periods consistently every month, could I not be ovulating? Ladies? It depends. It depends on how far apart your periods are. And usually kind of the rule of thumb I say is if you're periods are more than about 34 days apart, you're probably not ovulating consistently. You may ovulate randomly here and there, um, but you're probably not ovulating consistently. What would you say, Carrie? Even, I would say even, even sometimes patients who have regular periods who are, that are you know, 28, 29 days apart, it's still possible to have periods that are non-ovulatory. Um, I actually just had a long conversation with a patient who's 24 years old. She is a type 1 diabetic and her periods are very regular. Her sugars are very well controlled, which is an important point because blood sugars are often one of the most common causes that throw things off with ovulation. Um, and we, she's been checking ovulation predictor kits and the whole reason she came to see me is because they don't turn positive for her. And when we checked a day um, 21 progesterone level, it was very low showing that she hadn't ovulated. And so, yes, it is possible to have regular periods, but still not be ovulating regular, regularly. But you I, I, that's not a common thing though, right? Would you say? No, I don't think it's common at all. Okay, it, It's not common, but I think we all see it enough that it is something we are all aware of. And it's one of those things that because you have periods doesn't always mean that you're ovulating. But if you're ovulating and you don't get pregnant, you will have a period pretty consistently. Yes. Yeah. Fair? Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, kind of moving on to our topic of today, um, we're going to talk about how is the magic created in the lab? And, you know, how, how do we get those little embryos to do their thing? So I'm going to hand it over to Tex and let him share what you do every day. 
So, so let's start from, from the beginning of when we're doing stuff in the IVF lab. So patient has, you know, patient's asleep. We've gotten the first sets of eggs out and they have left our hands and they have now gone to the embryologist. So the embryologist has the egg in hand and what happens next? Right. Yeah. So um, after an egg retrieval, the embryologists um, are usually handed a, a test tube or a tube which has the um, fluid from uh, the follicle, uh, which has the egg. And so one of the first tasks that the embryologists do is count how many eggs um, have been you know, taken uh, from, from the body. And uh, very carefully, we may um, choose to take off some of the comforting cells that surround the egg. Um, and basically remove those eggs from the follicular fluid and put them in a, a growth um, media or a, a juice that has the right components to be able to um, you know, nurture those eggs and grow those uh, soon-to-be embryos in, in the laboratory. Um, and usually while that's happening on the female side, um, usually the male partner um, is either collecting a fresh um, ejaculate or a fresh semen sample, or uh, the andrologist or the people who, who deal with the sperm in the laboratory, um, the laboratory scientists, uh, there may be thawing sperm or, or prepping sperm um, so that later on in the day, we're able to um, add the sperm to the eggs. So my understanding is after sperm are, quote, prepped, they, they're pretty resilient. So they can kind of just hang out there because I know sometimes patients are like, but I, I know I have to get everything within an hour and that magic time frame. So can, can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, absolutely. So there are some um, components in the ejaculate, so in the, in the raw semen, that uh, if we're not able to remove that, and hence when we're prepping the sperm and, and putting, you know, the cleaning the sperm in such a way that, that uh, we're able to um, provide or identify the most uh, modal, the sperm that are moving the best, as well as the ones that look the best, um, as well as, you know, getting rid of the ones that possibly are dead. So if we're able to remove all of those, then the sample or the prepped sample, uh, which has the better sperm, can kind of, you know, sit there for a while um, and, and not cause any additional harm. But there's, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, DNA fragmentation and, you know, reactive oxygenated species, all these kind of things that we want to uh, prevent uh, happening. So as soon as we get that um, ejaculated raw semen, uh, we basically put it through a, a cleaning process whereby we're able to get the, uh, you know, the winners of the sperm um, ready to go for uh, fertilization. So can, go ahead, Abby. I was just going to say, describe the fertilization process because I, you know, try and show patients a picture of kind of, and I think probably, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the majority of patients have intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's where you take one single sperm and put it inside the egg. Describe that process because I think as I think about it myself, I don't, you know, we as, as clinicians don't personally do that. I think that is like a miraculous process. I think that has allowed so many couples to be able to be parents with just a small amount of sperm. So describe that to our listeners and how that works and how effective it is. And how you pick out which sperm. Right, absolutely. Yeah, so in the, in the natural occurring process, um, you know, there's receptors on the eggs and receptors on the sperm whereby they kind of, you know, think of two magnets coming together. And, you know, as a sperm kind of works its way, um, you know, through the uterus, uh, up the fallopian tube, you know, the, the, the strongest 
you know, survival will make it eventually to the egg. And then, you know, there's receptors whereby the, the sperm binds to the zona pellucida or the outside shell of the egg and kind of works its way in and then basically deposits its DNA and then the magic happens. Um, sometimes, though, that mechanism um, doesn't occur correctly in nature or we have too little sperm in order for, um, you know, them to, to make it all the way uh, to, the, uh, to the egg in nature. So we can bypass that system by doing um, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which is ICSI, and whereby we, under the microscope, after we've prepped the sperm, uh, we use a very um, small glass needle, a uh, hollow needle, to, to identify which sperm... Um, you know, looks the best, which one's got only one head, um, which one does not have two tails. Um, and, and this is based on sperm morphology. So we can use this needle to aspirate or pull that sperm um, up into this very, very fine needle. And it is, you're sitting at a microscope and you have these you know, extension of our arms, which are these micro manipulation tools. And it's kind of like playing a, a virtual video game, uh, whereby you've got the egg on one side and you have the sperm on the other and you use these tools and gradually um, use this needle to puncture the egg and deposit the sperm in a very, very safe uh, safe manner and process. Um, and what that basically does is it circumvents that natural uh, sperm-egg interaction process, which may not be there, um, by just directly putting that sperm into the egg. So how do you know when you are creating the puncture to get in, how do you know that all of the biologic processes that are needed to be kickstarted during that process are happening? And also, how do you know that you aren't accidentally damaging an important organelle or one of the, the small cellular structures that's needed when you go in with that needle? Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's um, a kind of landmark on the egg that uh, through um, historical and through thousands and if not millions of ICSIs um, allow us to position the egg and hold the egg in such a manner whereby when we stick the needle with the sperm into the egg, we can bypass or, or uh, not disturb any of the important organelles. And one of that landmark is it's called the polar body. And the polar body is basically a, a waste basket of, of chromosomes that the egg um, kind of pushes out and, and releases. So if we aim that polar body at a, at a certain part within the or a certain place um, within the, the ICSI process, uh, we can pretty much get by with not uh, damaging the egg as we inject the needle. And there's also some other technologies where we can uh, use certain light um, uh, to identify the chromosomal structure within the egg. Um, but you know, we want to reduce any light exposure to the egg because obviously you don't have a light on in the uterus um, or windows in the uterus. So we want to prevent uh, any, any additional manipulation on that side. But um, you know, ICSI has been very, very, very successful um, for, for many, many years with, um, you know, this, this simple, um, you know, technique of, of positioning the egg in the correct spot. So how many sperm do you need to do ICSI with? Because, you know, I have patients, some, some of our male patients have a really low sperm count, or sometimes they even have to undergo a testicular aspiration to get sperm. How many sperm do you need for ICSI? Yeah, well, you know, it's really one sperm, one egg. So if you've got six eggs, you need six sperm. Um, you know, it really comes down to the, the quality of the specimen and the sample. Um, obviously, we want to identify sperm that are, are modal and they're moving. Um, there's a way that we kind of stun them to keep them from swimming away. Um, and if you, you know, happen to Google 
videos and see all these sperm moving around. We actually use kind of a, a thick syrup, um, so to speak, that allows the sperm to slow down so we can actually catch them uh, with the needle. And that way we can you know, really visualize the sperm correctly um, and, and try to pick, uh, based on morphology, what that sperm looks like, uh, pick the best sperm. So it's really a, a one-to-one, um, especially with ICSI. You know, we only inject one sperm uh, into one egg. So are the boy sperms the, the ones that move the further away from you and they're hardest to deal with, or is it the girl sperm? Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell. <laughs> so are the boy <laughs> sperms faster because the Y chromosomes are smaller and have less material than the X chromosomes, so they're lighter? There's been some theory, yeah, that the, the slower, you know, with the X chromosomes are a bit more sluggier. Um, but uh, yeah, usually it's, it's, a, it's a 50-50 gamble as to which one you can select. <laughs> So once you have the egg that's been inseminated, um, what happens next to it? So what kind of, what are they doing? Are they just sitting there? And I know we use the term dish a lot and we all know exactly what that means because we're all you know biology nerds who have worked with these kind of dishes a lot. But to an average person, you say dish and you think dinner platter, <laughs> and then it's a little different from what you see in the lab. But what what happens next? So you've got your egg and your sperm that are together. Yeah. Um, so we 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 culture. We use the word culture, which is kind of you know gross. We we grow these embryos um, in a dish, and maybe think of a dish as a uh, a, a lid. To, you know, a, a pickle jar or something. Um, so that inverted lid is uh, has has multiple little droplets of culture media, and the culture media is, is a growth a juice, and it really has um, the the nutrients that will allow um, those embryos to to grow, and the nutrients mimic um, you know, what's in the actual uterus, right? Um, so we want to so we want to mimic in the laboratory what's going on, you know in nature, what's going on in the body. And we, we tend not to disturb um, these embryos um, because, you know, obviously we're not taking, every time we take the embryos out of this incubator, which is temperature controlled and has the right gas concentration, um, you know, every time we remove those embryos out um, and look at them under a microscope, we're, we're disturbing them. So we want to try to minimize that because obviously we're not nature taking the embryos out of your uterus and looking at them and then putting them back in, right? So Curiosity we want to cat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we want to try to keep it as as consistent and as uh, natural as possible. Um, and you know, we will look at the embryos every every so few days. Um, back in the days, we used to look at the embryos every day because that way we can um, identify which ones went from one cell to two cells to four cells to eight cells, and we would track it all down on a piece of paper. Uh, but the science and technology have shown that if we're able to leave them alone, um, we can get to that blastocyst stage a lot uh, better um, and overall have better looking embryos. So Tex, what type of technologies are coming out that kind of helps us with our curiosity and potentially even um, techniques, but allows those embryos to stay in that consistent incubator environment? Yeah, so we've got some fantastic technologies that have kind of come to helm, which has been uh, one of them is called time lapse. And what time lapse technology does is that, you know, under each one of these dishes, there's a camera. And of course, these dishes are plastic and they're clear. So the camera 
takes a photo about every five minutes of that growing embryo. And what we can do by not taking the embryos out of the incubator and putting them on a microscope, having a look, and then putting them back in the incubator, these incubators have this camera built in. So by taking the photos every five minutes of the embryos, we're able to put all those videos or put all those uh, pictures together and have a time-lapse video of that embryo development. And so we can get a real understanding of how fast those embryos are growing, how slow those embryos are growing, are the embryos growing, um, which ones are not. And we're able to you know, really have a hands-off approach um, to embryo uh, uh, growth and, and watching these miraculous events. So a couple of questions. Do most labs do that? Is that a common thing for people to do? And then sort of the second question is, how does the speed of development make a difference for you as an embryologist? Yeah, so some labs are equipped with this technology. Um, it's not readily available. Um, it is quite expensive technology on the on the laboratory side. So um, some are, are late adopters, some are early adopters. So not all laboratories have this ability. Um, and the, the question with regards to um, growth of the embryo, um, there's, a, there's a cool word called morphokinetics. And what that means is that by looking at the morphology and the changes of the cells and the number of cells and how the embryos grow, um, you know, we can get a lot of uh, uh, cool information about the embryo based on morphokinetics. And with time lapse, you know, we have a video that we can watch these embryos grow. So perhaps the slower growing embryos, you know, uh, maybe they're the girls. Not necessarily, but um, you know, maybe they're they're just taking a little bit longer to grow, um, and sometimes they may not uh, continue to grow accordingly. So we may choose not to transfer, or not to freeze those embryos. Let me just point out that's not a scientific fact that the girls are <laughs> growers. I was this waiting is for true. you to, this to is say true. something. Nobody <laughs> called him out on that. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I had to. I had a good audience to pull that one. Um, but then you know you have He'll be taken out, flogged, that, and beaten afterwards. Don't worry. <laughs> that's this. right. That's right. You got that edit edit button. Um, but then some embryos grow too fast, and they basically um, they they grow so quickly that they kind of get tired um, and they stop growing. So it's that really is usually the problem with guys. So maybe See? he's right. Maybe they get oh, I was going there. or something. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Thank you for that softball. The- Appreciate that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, a lot of cool things going on in the lab. And, and some of these technologies are also using uh, artificial intelligence. Um, obviously, with AI, um, you know, it, it, the, the algorithms and the, and the computer vision can pick up things that we can't see with the human eye. So um, helping us better identify you know, what embryos are going to lead to a viable pregnancy. And that's always um, the, the, the biggest task. So, a lot of labs have gone to day five or blastocyst transfers, whether they're fresh or frozen. Can can you explain what exactly is a multi-cell embryo versus a blastocyst? And and what are are things you like to see and what are things you don't really like to see when you're looking at those embryos? Yeah, so the multi-cell embryo, um, usually up till day four, you can still kind of count the number of cells in the embryo. So on day three, um, you expect the embryos to be anywhere between eight and you know twelve cells. On day four, those cells start merging together into what we call a morula. Um, and, and at that point, the cell junctions or the outer walls of the cells uh, start to combine and fade, and you kind of just have a, a clump of this you know cellular matrix. 
Um, and then on day five, what eventually starts happening is those cells start to what we call differentiate. So some of those cells um, have genes that are going to cause them to uh, become uh, trophectoderm cells or TE cells. And those trophectoderm cells are the outer cells of the embryo, and that's what will eventually become the placenta. And then some of those cells, some of the genes will turn on, and, and those cells will become the inner cell mass or the ICM. And those are, you know, the, the precursor, or the, or the early cells um, that become the baby proper. So in order to get uh, to have a baby, you're going to need to have both of those cells. You're going to need those trophectoderm cells and then the clump of cells called the inner cell mass. Now, based on morphology, um, we have identified... And, and that, for our listeners, morphology is how it appears. Correct. How these embryos look, we would like to see a nice clumping of inner cell mass cells and then multiple um, you know, uh, universal-looking uh, trophectoderm cells. And so at the blastocyst stage, that's what we're after. And they can be you know, quite expanded, they can be quite small, but you know, we're only good as, as to what we, what we know and historically can identify what we think is going to be the best um, embryo for you know, to resulting into a pregnancy. And of course, there's also tools with genetic testing that allows us to further verify and potentially you know, deselect which embryos not to transfer. Um, but we're, we're, we're looking at you know, what the embryos look like, how many cells they have, and our culture system, meaning how we're able to grow the embryos, have gotten so, so much better over the last three decades that we don't need to transfer the cells that are the embryos at the multi-cell stage, you know, the earlier day three. We can actually grow these embryos and let the embryos prove to them, prove to us that they are um, competent and they're growing correctly, hence the extended culture to that uh, blastocyst stage. So what do you think about the thought of if more embryos are alive at the day three point than mm -hmm. make it out to day five, what do you think about the argument of, well, maybe we should transfer more at day three because we're putting them back into the quote unquote natural environment of the uterus at day three. Yep. I saw the little air quotes uh, over there, Susan, and I really <laughs> restrained myself from doing it myself, mostly because this is a podcast, not a video, but believe I me. I did it if, for you. <laughs> and I appreciate that. Um, so what do you think about the, the day three transfer? Because going back into the uterus is a quote unquote more natural environment versus going out to blastocyst where that embryo really has proven itself. I mean, do you think that the uterus at day three really is a more natural environment? Do you think that there is a potential increase in, in pregnancy rates? Do you think that blastocyst transfer is better? Um, this is a topic that there's becoming more and more consensus in our world about what what most people do, but um, but it, there's certainly not all consensus, and and different docs do different things. Absolutely, and patients still ask us, and patients still ask us, and they use that exact argument. Right. Yeah. So being a being a lab guy, um, I have so much confidence in my culturing system that if an embryo doesn't make it to the blastocyst stage in my lab, more than likely it will not make a blastocyst in the uterus. Now, um, if you ask me this. 15 years ago, I may have a different story, um, but that's not the case. Um, you know, we have really dialed in our embryo growth systems, um, whereby I'm, you know, very confident that, uh, yeah, we'll be able to get the blastocyst. And, and, you know, through the evolution of what we've done in IVF, um, 
by putting multiple embryos back on day three, you always have that risk of having multiple pregnancies. And that's really a, a big no-no nowadays. You know, we, we want to have, um, you know, one egg, one embryo, one birth. Um, it's better for the patient. It's better for us. Um, it's better for the baby. So by really pushing those embryos, so to speak, in the culture system, in the laboratory, and identifying which ones are more superior uh, based on their development to that blastocyst stage, um, I'm confident that, um, yeah, uh, blastocyst transfers are the, are the way to go. Sort of on a different note, but also a patient question I get a lot is, you know, say if I have a young, healthy patient, she comes in for egg retrieval, we get 15 eggs. What what number would you give her? What chances would you give her of having normal embryos at the end of it? And how many would you expect looking into your crystal ball? Because I think people are continually surprised by the inefficiency of human reproduction. They expect that we're going to retrieve more eggs and that they're going to have a lot more embryos at the end of it than they actually do. And there's really a lot of attrition there and people... F- People don't realize that. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. What's, nor- what's normal? <laughs> A setting on the dryer. <laughs> Again, I'm looking for that crystal ball. Um, you know, there, there's so many factors involved in the process. It's hard to give you a direct answer. But what I do tell patients is, um, you know, it's kind of the, the funnel effect, right? You start off big and then you kind of move your way down. Um when a patient has an egg retrieval and has been told that they have 20 eggs, um, that doesn't mean they're going to have 20, you know, chances at pregnancy. Um, not only do you have 20 eggs, but then, you know, the number gets smaller by the number of mature eggs. You may only have 15, right? And then if you have 15 mature eggs after your fertilization, you may only have, you know, 10 that fertilize normally. And out of the 10 that fertilize normally, you may only have five that are, make it to the blastocyst stage. Um, out of the five that make it to the blastocyst stage, maybe only two to three of those are chromosomally normal. Um, so it's, it's hard to, you know, put a real number on that. There are some statistics, there are some, um, in fact, artificial intelligence is now looking at this data to sort of predict um, the chances and the odds, but um, a lot of it goes back to patient age and, and uh, sperm factors, as well as making sure you're, you're going to a good laboratory that can grow these embryos. Um, so, yeah, I can't give you a specific number. I wish I could, and, and uh, uh, but it's multi, multivariable. Yeah, but it's clear to say that if you start out with a bunch, you're not going to have a bunch at the end. You're probably going to have, best case scenario, maybe two or three genetically normal embryos in a young woman. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you do have a lot more, you consider yourself lucky and go get a lottery ticket that day. Uh, <laughs> it could potentially happen. So, Tex, something that you hit on a little bit ago when you were talking about, you know, is the uterus the best place or the lab the best place? And you commented that in your lab nowadays, you feel very confident that if the embryo did not move, did not progress to a blastocyst at day five, that it was not going to result in a baby. And I, as somebody who has used one of your labs for a number of years, and I'm sure Abby and Carrie would, would agree with me that, that we have that confidence in our ovation labs, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, but unfortunately, not all labs are created equal. Okay, I, I, I see this when people come to me from, you know, they've done IVF cycles elsewhere and they've had, you know, when I sit there and look at them as a patient and I look at the numbers and, you know, the stimulation and I'm like, I think we need to do this again because I think the issue was the lab. Um, 
that that's one thing that I know a lot of patients, not necessarily at the beginning of their fertility journey, but people who have gone through IVF cycles elsewhere and they're they're looking for a second or third opinion. Um, how as as a consumer, how coming from the lab side, how would you try? Because I mean, I, there and there's I can say there's no right answer to this because we talk about this all the time. There's not a great comparison, but how would you advise patients who are looking for a quality lab? Yeah, um, you know, great question. I think a lot of it is is kind of word of mouth, um, but also you know, ask the questions. You know, go to the go to the laboratory or, or speak. Ask to speak to you know, one of the lavatorians and you can easily ask, you know, what is your blast utilization rate or your usable blast rate? And what that number is, is it's the number of embryos that grow to the blastocyst stage based on, you know, how many started off uh, that were fertilized normally. And, you know, if that number is, you know, less than 30%, it's probably not a good lab. Um, you know, we try to stay within the 50 to 65% range. Um, but, you know, that's, a, that's an easy question. And you can ask about the, you know, culture conditions. You know, do you look at the embryos every day? Um, I would say that that's probably not a good thing. We have shown that undisturbed, you know, do not disturb. Hang out your do not disturb sign on the incubator. Same thing you would do at a hotel room, you know. Leave these embryos alone. Let them stay in their controlled environment. Um, and, and again, looking at statistics that are uh, potentially available, um, going to SART uh, website or, or you know, looking at uh, what, what kind of published data is around for these particular laboratories. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's a lot of different things. And again, I think you, you can feel based on um, how responsive laboratories are um, and how successful they are just through you know, some open communication and see what kind of answers you may get. One thing I would advise people listening out there is if you go to your lab and they won't talk to you, that it, that in itself to me is a red flag because you need to have embryologists who are open and honest and willing to talk to you. And um, don't be afraid to ask to talk to the embryologist because it, you know, it, it sometimes feel like, it feels like the embryologists are the people behind the screen, like the Wizard of Oz, um, but, but that's not who they are or should be. Very true. I think all of us would agree that our embryologists are largely responsible for the success that we have in IVF. I mean, we we take the eggs out and we put the embryos back in, but in between there, the lab is key. I mean, the lab is really responsible for our success, for sure. Very much so. Without them, we don't go anywhere. Yeah, and these are, you know, highly specialized individuals who really love what they do. And it's kind of, you know, the the idea of being lab rats behind the closed doors and, and doing this fine, detailed work. Um, you know, most of us have uh, uh, you know, OCD and want to make sure we get it uh, right. And, um, you know, we, we can't mess up and we and we and we don't. Um, but we we really have a passion for what it is that we do. And, um, you know, I've got many, many memorable uh, or memories of um, meeting a patient at time of retrieval, and uh, you know, seeing their number, you know, seeing their their plan of, of of action for fertility treatment, and you know, going in a laboratory, doing what we do, and you know, kind of becomes a bit of a distant memory, and then they show up a few months later uh, with a baby, and you know, it's really touching, um, especially on a on the laboratory scientific side, is the you know the miracles that happen uh, behind the closed door. It is miraculous. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, on that note, 
Tex, thank you so much for joining us. You're amazing to talk to and a wealth of information always. Um, to our audience, thanks for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also visit us on fertility.sensensor.com to schedule an appointment with any of us. Or if you have a question, we'd love to answer it. Um, all will be answered anonymously and the more embarrassing, the better. All right, everyone. We will talk to you soon. See you next week. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.